Before we open God's word, I'd like to begin this evening with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, as we bring our series on Jonah to a conclusion, would you bring to our mind the things that we've learned from your word, how even a prophet that you sent forth fails to serve you as he should, and you in your mercy fail to punish him as you should. We thank you, Lord, that just like the Ninevites, us Gentile sinners were part of your plan, that your offer, your covenant that you established with Abraham when he was still a Gentile extends through all of human history that there will be one people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles that come to faith, our spiritual Israel. We thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to suffer your wrath, to pay the redemption and pay the the price of our sin so that he could account to us who are unworthy and sinful the righteousness that he himself had. We ask you to be with us tonight, Lord, and help us grow from your word. And would you bless this time together of fellowship and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You would please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 10. Matthew 15, starting with verse 10. What we have here is... Uh, interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. And this, this happened quite often, especially um, later on in his ministry. And Jesus has been rebuked by the Pharisees and the scribes in the, in the beginning of chapter 15 for permitting his disciples to eat without washing their hands. Now, we know that's good hygiene. Our parents always told us, wash your hands before you eat. You don't want to get sick, but that's not the reason why the Pharisees were so offended that they didn't listen to their parents and follow good hygiene practices. But rather, the Pharisees were angry and offended because the disciples had violated an oral, extra-biblical Jewish law that required the washing of hands prior to eating. According to their tradition, this lack of washing caused the disciples to be defiled. After rebuking them in return for their hypocrisy, we read in Matthew 15, starting with verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. We see four verses later, Peter asking Jesus to explain what he meant by this. Starting with verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth 
come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed unwashed hands does not defile the man. What's interesting is you see in the very next verse, verse 21, Jesus departs for Tyre and Sidon, where a Canaanite woman wails to Jesus to have mercy on her, calling him son of David, begging him to cure her daughter of demonic possession, which he does in verses 21 to 28. What an important contrast. You go from the religious leaders who are filled with religious indignation, impugning Jesus, and he rebukes them. On the other hand, you have a Canaanite woman who was considered a Gentile of the worst sort in Jewish eyes. Honoring him with a messianic title, humbling herself before Jesus, and he shows her mercy. The Pharisees revealed what was in their heart. The Canaanite woman did as well. Jesus responded perfectly to both of them. This brings us to our text this evening in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. So if you'd turn with me to Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 1, going to 11. And this is our text for this evening. The title of our message tonight is Jonah, the Resentful Prophet. We start our reading with chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Yahweh, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Yahweh said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So Yahweh God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then Yahweh said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? This closes out the book of Jonah. Chapter 4 provides the pinnacle of the narrative in the book of Jonah. Here we see the source of Jonah's rebellion, self-righteousness, and reluctance that we visited in chapters 1 through 3. Jonah is resentful of God and his gracious mercy. Tonight we will first analyze Jonah's resentment. Secondly, we will observe God's perfect response. Third, we'll explore Jesus' absence of resentment. And fourth, examine our own hearts to evaluate the resentment we may have against others, or maybe even Jesus or God himself. Starting with main point one, Jonah's sinful resentment. In the last few times together, we have read the first three chapters of Jonah. In chapter one, we saw him flee rebelliously from God after Yahweh directs him to preach to the Ninevites. Due to the paucity or scarceness of information we are given regarding motive, we're forced to play detective. We suspect it's cultural due to the ferocity of the Assyrian army and their national demeanor. We glean a little bit more from Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, but not much. We're teased, we've teased out a few details revealing that the self-righteous superiority complex he has is harbored against the pagan Gentiles. Chapter 3, though Jonah's not yet repented and sought forgiveness for any of his previous sinfulness, it appears Jonah's come to his senses. He travels to Nineveh to carry Yahweh's message. But he arrives in the city, he reluctantly delivers a half-hearted message with little clarity or substance. What's going on here? What is happening with this prophet? Like a good mystery novel, the author deftly develops our curiosity in the first three chapters, similar to an orchestra that crescendos to the summit of emotion in a musical composition. The author finally reveals Jonah's true motive in chapter four. Jonah harbors resentment toward God. Not just a smoldering resentment, but a raging inferno of fury toward God. What could possibly drive Jonah to act so wickedly toward God who had two chapters prior rescued him from death? God is merciful to the Ninevites and Jonah can't stand it. We'll start with verse 1. Well, various English translations read differently. You see the New American Standard Bible reads it this way. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. That doesn't really sound much like raging fury. The ESV, which is the English Standard Version and the New King James Version are a little bit stronger. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. That's a little stronger. The closest English translation of the original Hebrew is the Legacy Standard Bible, which reads, But this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. What was the great evil? Well, you have to go back to the last verse of chapter 3, verse 10, to find it. And this is what we find. 
When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Remember last week we used the term ra'ah? meaning evil. But it has multiple terms, and the author deftly reuses this Hebrew word throughout the book of Jonah. It means wickedness, calamity, or evil. So look at what the author of Jonah does here with the Hebrew. When the Ninevites turn from their ra'ah, wickedness, then God relents from unleashing calamity, this raw, which he declared he would bring on them, and he did not do it. So the Ninevites relented and repented of their ra'ah, and God relented from the calamity or the ra'ah he was bringing on the Ninevites. Now, verse four, uh, four, chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah picks up his own ra'ah. From the Hebrew, we translate it as, and it was evil to Jonah. God relenting from unleashing calamity because Nineveh repented of their wicked deeds, Jonah sees this as evil. Ra'ah is used twice in this verse. The Hebrew could be translated to English this way. It was ra'ah, evil, to Jonah, a great ra'ah, evil, and he burned with anger. That, my friends, is sinful resentment. You know what I'm talking about because we've all experienced this. But that's not all. Like a crime drama when the suspect is on the stand and the prosecutor's pulling threads and pulling threads until the defendant blurts out the truth and monologues. Jonah does here in his prayer to Yahweh, confessing the true source of his rage. We read in verses 2 and 3. He prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Yahweh, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Yahweh, Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. We hear from Jonah's own lips that when God first told Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh, Jonah argued with him. Then he ran away. Wow. As a reader of God's word, I know you, like I, are expecting fire to fall from the sky. Like the fire that came out of the presence of Yahweh consuming Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10.2 when they presumed to worship God improperly by offering strange fire. Jonah is in open rebellion. But we see the mercy of God here. As if to say, mea culpa, I am guilty, as charged, of being a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity, 
God demonstrates this in his response to Jonah, who's demanding God take his life since God won't destroy Nineveh. God gently responds in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? We're reminded of the opening words of Proverbs 15, where we read, a gentle word turns away wrath. We know this works. We've seen it in our own lives. Either someone spoke gently to us when we were filled with sinful rage, and we couldn't see straight and they calmed us down, or we've spoke gently to someone who is furiously angry. So what was Jonah's response? Glad you asked. He leaves the city. What? Read the next verse with me, verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. So picture this if you will. Jonah's in the city. He did his half-hearted proselytization. He gave exactly the words God told him. No more. He spent one day, not three, sharing the gospel, and he's in the city watching. And what he sees is this, repentance, national repentance from the king to the lowest of men. And he's so upset with this. He acknowledges his wickedness again without repenting himself and insists it's better for God to kill him than to let him live. So what does he do once he goes outside of the city to the east? Verse 5. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. He went away from the city, made himself a little shelter so he could watch Nineveh burn under God's holy wrath, much like Sodom and Gomorrah. This hateful, vengeful, disobedient, self-righteous, resentful prophet has checked every item on the list to show how to be the worst prophet ever. Lest we piously look down on Jonah, don't fail to notice the mirror the author places in front of him. In this prophet, we can't help but to see ourselves. Jonah's failed at every turn. Just as Jesus said centuries later in Matthew 15, 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. Jonah has shown his heart is defiled based on the words and deeds that flow from it. In contrast, God continues to demonstrate he is everything that Jonah says he is. And this brings us to our second main point, God's perfect response. Jonah's upset with God for five attributions he feels should not be shown to the Assyrians who are Gentiles. It seems Jonah's forgotten the promise God made to the Gentile Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Here we read, Yahweh had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. 
God's mercy and grace are available to all who will submit to him. Let's take a few minutes to ponder the five attributes Jonah correctly attributes to Yahweh as revealed in Scripture. We see this in Numbers 14, verses 18 and 19. When Israel rebelled against God after the spies returned from the promised land with a bad report, God was angry. In pleading with God to spare the lives of the people, Moses cries out, quoting God in his prayerful plea as seen in verse 18. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. The next verse, Moses petitions the Lord to continue demonstrating these attributes. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. We see this elsewhere in Nehemiah 9, verse 17. Where after Ezra reads the book of the law to the Israelites, they confessed their sin and remembered God's mercy to their ancestors who rebelled against God and Moses. We read, starting with verse 17, about the Israelites with Moses. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Same attributes are repeated over and over. We see them in Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 116, Psalm 145, and written in Joel 2, verse 13. What I'd like to do is briefly look at each of these five attributes that God perfectly demonstrates to help us understand the magnificence and the glory of our God. First word that we see is that God is gracious. In the Hebrew, it is pronounced chanuk, and it's translated from Hebrew as merciful, kind, or gracious. We find the same word in Psalm 112, verse 4. We read, light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. Secondly, God is compassionate. comes from the Hebrew word rachum. The word is explained in the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament in this way. To love tenderly, be very fond of, caress, loving, tender of a mother toward her children. So it's a very gentle compassion. We see it in Psalm 78, 38 in this way. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. God is slow to anger. This is the third attribute that Jonah attributes to God. This is interesting because the word in Hebrew, or the words in Hebrew, translate to English as long of nostril. It's an idiom, a Hebrew idiom. And, and what this links to is uh, 
the flaring of the nose of a bull. When a bull gets angry, it starts flaring its nose. You know it's angry. And this is the idiom that the Hebrew uses for anger, is the flaring of the nostril. So long of nostril means that you're slow to anger. Short of nostril means you're quick to anger. Also used to reference patient or long-suffering in addition to being slow to anger. Next, we see that God is abounding in mercy. And the Hebrew here links two words which might be translated directly to English as abounding in faithfulness or abounding in mercy. It's a rich word with myriad meanings that convey the wonderful love of Yahweh. This word, chesed, is found in the Old Testament over 250 times. Time prohibits my reading all the verses attached and all the meanings of this word, but I'll provide a few examples of use and the linked Bible verses so you can examine it later at your own convenience. It can mean loyalty, Deuteronomy 7.12, faithfulness, Psalm 89.25, graciousness, Psalm 33.5, and Proofs of God's mercy in Lamentations 3, verse 22. God's mercy and loving kindness are exemplified in the last quality Jonah attributes to God as one who relents concerning calamity. We've seen numerous instances in the examples provided this evening. God relented from destroying wicked, rebellious Israel wicked, rebellious Nineveh, and wicked, rebellious Jonah. God promises judgment to all who rebel against him, but is patient and willing to forgive those who repent of their sin and turn to him for forgiveness. Why? Because of his love. He chose a people for himself even before he created the universe. We see this in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In his love, God devised an eternal plan of redemption for fallen man by sending God the Son to redeem a people from their sins. How? By suffering and dying on the cross to pay their sin debt in full. As we read in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us are like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Again, how does God respond to Jonah? He gives Jonah an object lesson 
illustrating his mercy and how it's freely given to whomever he wishes. Let's return to Jonah chapter 4, verse 6 to pick up the story. So Yahweh God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came up the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then Yahweh said, you had compassion on the plant, which you did not work for, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? God gave Jonah relief from the scorching heat, then removes it. In both cases, it is through the agency of God. God appoints a plant to grow. God appoints a worm to attack the plant. God appoints a scorching east wind to get Jonah's attention before asking him a piercing question. Why does Jonah have compassion for a plant he neither planted nor tended, yet has no compassion for a large city filled with people and animals. Now, regarding the number in this text, 120,000, commentators look at it two different ways, two points of view. Some commentators hold the number of those who do not know the difference between their right and left hand indicate very small children, which is but a small sample of the total number of inhabitants in the city. Other commentators, of whom I tend to agree with, see the term, do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as being representative of those who are outside the faith, therefore are ignorant of the law. Regardless of one's position on the matter, all agree that God's mercy covers an extremely large number of undeserving sinners as well as innocent animals. These numbers pale in comparison to those who are shown God's mercy through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Despite the rejection, pain, suffering, ridicule, and death that Jesus experienced during his earthly ministry, Jesus was free from all sin, including resentment. This brings us to our third main point. Jesus' absence of resentment. Jesus is God the Son. All the glorious characteristics Jonah accused Yahweh of are also true of and manifested in Jesus Christ. A quick look at the definition of resentment may be useful before we continue. The American Heritage Dictionary, 5th edition, defines resentment as Indignation or ill will stemming from a feeling of having been wronged or offended. 
This definition fits Jonah pretty well. He was offended that God would offer mercy to the Ninevites. What about Jesus? What might have initiated a sense of indignation or ill will stemming from a feeling of having been wronged or offended? How about everything? Was Jesus resentful? Not at all. He was wronged. He was rightfully offended. Yet, he acted sinlessly, completely without resentment. And scripture offers us many examples. Jesus made the world, came to the world, came to his own, and they did not receive him. John 1 verse 10. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. The sinless Savior was constantly bombarded by the vile presence of sin in every person around him his entire life. He knew their thoughts, heard their words, witnessed their deeds. Jesus was rejected by his followers, John 6, verse 66. Abandoned by his disciples who left him and fled at his arrest and trial, Mark 4, verse 50. Sorry, Mark 14, verse 50. Jesus was framed for execution by the very religious leaders who should have known from Scripture that he was the promised seed, the Messiah, Matthew 26, verse 59. The same crowd who quoted Psalm 118, verse 26, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel was shouting, crucify him, just a few days after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Lastly, Jesus was scourged, paraded through the streets to be stripped of his clothes, nailed to a cross, and mocked by the crowds until he died. Matthew 27, verses 22 to 44. But this was not the worst of his suffering. Jesus suffered the full fury and abandonment of God the Father, the very one Jesus had shared a loving relationship with from eternity past. His cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not only a fulfillment of Psalm 22 verse 1, one commentator notes, Christ at that moment was experiencing the abandonment and despair that results from the divine outpouring of wrath on him as the sin bearer. He who was out without sin had the sin of all who had come to believe poured on him and he suffered the wrath, the righteous wrath of God in full payment of that sin. Paul clearly explains this reason In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This was the plan. This was the plan from eternity past. Christ came to ransom his life for those who had come to believe in him. Jesus did this in complete obedience to God's will knowing perfectly what lay in store for him. Jesus was in such agony as he prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane that his will be done. Jesus suffered hemotidrosis, 
a medical condition where subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst, mingling blood with his sweat. Luke 22, verse 44. Jesus was not only given a message to deliver to wicked sinners as Jonah was, Jesus was called to give his life and to suffer the undiluted wrath of God as a sacrifice for their sins. Jesus suffered because he chose to suffer. Those who rejected him will face his wrath, but it will be a just wrath at the final judgment. This brings us to the last question in our series of self-examination, our fourth main point for this evening. Are you resentful? God is the author of salvation. It is he who provides the means and the spirit to transform hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. It is he who determines the time, place, and circumstances of conversion. God has provided his trusted prophet Jonah an opportunity to be part of his glorious, magnificent plan of bringing sinners into the kingdom. Jonah instead chose to defy God because he was resentful of God's mercy. Here are three questions that we should ask ourselves as Christians. These questions do not just apply to missions or church activities, but even to our daily lives. Number one, are you resentful of others? At work, do you sinfully covet the recognition, opportunities, or the job titles of others? At church, do you resent those who've been asked to serve in ways you've longed to serve? Do you bear a grudge against those you believe have money you don't think they've earned? Leisure or free time you feel entitled to? Belongings you don't believe they deserve? A life you should feel that you should have? Repent. Are you resentful toward God's mercy toward others? That they grew up in a Christian home? That their children all came to faith? That they are married if you are single? Or that they as single people have more free time than you have because you're married? That their relationships are godly, strong, Christ-centered? That God saved someone who did you wrong, blessed someone who slighted you, or did not rain down the discipline or punishment you felt that they deserve. Repent. Are you resentful toward God himself? That he didn't save you sooner than he did? That he hasn't answered a prayer that you want in a way that you wanted? That he makes you wait? That he let you or someone you love suffer a chronic disease, financial hardship, illness, or some other difficulty? Repent. God formed you in his own image. Genesis 1.27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. God not only created you in his image. If you're in Christ, he's shaping you in his image to be more like Christ. We read in Romans 8.29 For those whom he pre-knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. How does God conform you to be more like Christ? Through trials, 
and difficulties. James 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not one of us knows the plans of God. It's never our charge to question him. We are not to alter or improve his plan. We are to obey his commands, no matter how difficult, how distasteful, or even how dangerous. That is how we demonstrate our love for him. As we see in John 17, 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, in conclusion, we've all heard the story of Jonah. It is one of the most recognized narratives in all of Scripture. The intent of the sermon series was to study this fascinating book to learn more about Jonah, God, and ourselves. As Christians, each one of us has been called by God to learn his word, live his word, and spread his word, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commands us from his word. Making disciples of all nations includes those far away, as well as the nation in which we live. Even if we are not called to undertake a dangerous mission trip like Jonah, we can still be rebellious, self-righteous, reluctant, and resentful. We need to repent of this and confess to the world our hope in Christ. Jesus instructs his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 22. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Lest we walk away from our time of worship shaking our heads and praying we don't remain like Jonah, I would ask you to consider this. Despite Jonah's sinfulness, God's purpose was fulfilled. We hear this from Jesus' own lips in Matthew 12, verse 41, where he responds to the Pharisees who demand a sign from him. Jesus says to them, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. God used Jonah. He will use you too. It was not uncommon for Old Testament authors to write of themselves in the third person. Other prophets, such as Hosea, Joel, and Zephaniah, began their books in the same way. How wonderful that the Spirit moved Jonah to confess the vast scope of his disobedience to God and record all of it for us to read in the pages of Scripture. This marvelous book was written to reveal the remarkable mercy and restraint God shows in dealing with wicked sinners, disobedient believers, and the grace he offers to salvation to Gentiles. Jonah helped us to see the extent of God's glory. Like the Ninevites, Jonah too came to repentance. May we continue to do the same.
Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Sometimes it's a joy, it's encouraging, it's comforting, and other times it's unbearable to read because we see in it our own sin, our own unworthiness, our own wretchedness. And it pierces us to the heart, but that's the purpose of Scripture to sanctify us, to let us never be comfortable or complacent, but to force us constantly, daily, to examine our lives, to pray and with your spirit to root out the remaining evil in our lives. This will be a lifelong effort, Lord, and will never be done until we die and see you in all your glory or you return to the earth and make all things right. But let us not grow weary of pursuing the truth. Let us not grow weary of pursuing holiness. Let us not grow weary of the effort that you call us to, to grow, to take the trials that you allow in our lives, to trust in you and to grow in our faith so that we may be sanctified and grow in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time together and may we have this week ahead of us be a time of reflection and growth. And may we rejoice that you keep all of your promises and just like Jonah, if it's your will, you can do mighty things with broken tools because that's what we are. But we can do all things through Christ who sustains us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.